G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. I think there's a great opportunity in this space because if you look at sort of who owns these hotels, it's a little bit like multifamily was a few years ago where you had a lot of mom and pop owners, right? And they, they were, they were semi-professionalized at best and they're, you know, it was before you know the the big institutions getting into buying from mom and pops, right? If you look at a lot of these hotels, well, who owns them? They're baby boomers, sometimes even silent generation folks are older than the boomers. Uh, their their kids don't want to take over the hotels, right? They and there's a very limited exit for them because you basically have to sell to somebody who wants to then take on the job of running a hotel. If it's a bed and breakfast, I think most people can probably handle like a small bed and breakfast if they've never done it before. But getting into like a 30, 40, 50 room hotel, that's like if you don't have some expertise, you're going to be this is difficult. Right. And plus, you've got to come up with the capital. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with a very, very good friend of mine, Jonathan Twombly. 
Jonathan is a former Wall Street lawyer who became a multifamily syndicator and investor in 2011. He built a solid uh, multifamily portfolio in the Carolinas, and he since has sold that. And he's also now co-GP'd and JV'd on multifamily deals in excess of over $200,000. He recently purchased his first hotel property with a view to build you know, what's called a boutique brand. And we're going to talk a lot about more about this on today's show. And his company is called Two Bridges Asset Management, LLC. And he's most passionate about being an entrepreneur, not working for anyone else, and helping others realize that same potential. Jonathan, uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? I'm doing great. You you missed uh, three zeros on the amount of money that I've been the, the deals I've been involved with, but that's okay. What did I say? You said two hundred thousand. Two. I I meant to say two hundred million dollars. Two hundred million dollars. If you're two hundred thousand, I've known you for eight years. If it's two hundred thousand dollars in eight years, I think someone's doing something wrong, right? <laughs> but at least the Absolutely. beauty about the beauty about podcasting is we can do whatever the hell we want, and people That's get to right. listen. People get to listen to it. But mate, how you been? What's been happening? Um, I've been I've been really well. Uh, well, let's see. I mean, as you know, we're working together on some on some deals, which is super fun. I mean, it's great after all these years of knowing each other to actually work together on stuff. So uh, really enjoying that a lot uh, and learning a lot from the way you, you know, your process too, which is fantastic. Um, I, let's see, the, the big interesting news for me, I guess, is that I recently bought my first hotel right. and uh, that's a departure from what I had been doing before. Uh, but something that uh, is a little bit of a passion project for me, but I, also can't help with my entrepreneurial brain thinking about how this could, you know, potentially grow into something big. So that's what, you know, that's what's keeping me busy other than helping, uh, helping you out these days. Well, I want to get into that, but before we do, I want to rewind the clock and just reintroduce yourself to the people of uh, Investing Nation here, because you were on my show way back in episode, I think it was 20 or 21. Mm-hmm. We're now at 360 episodes, six and a half, seven years later. So back then we were talking about how you're starting a fund, and I highly recommend everyone go back and listen to that. But just let's give us a quick uh, introduction for yourself, your background, how you got into the space, just for those people who don't know who you are. And that's that's pretty difficult these days with your uh, social media presence. I think there are probably a lot of people who still don't know who I am. But nevertheless, uh, the uh, yeah, so uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I started out as a Wall Street lawyer. Uh, I did that for about 12 years altogether. The last part of my career was actually in real estate-related law. I was... Uh, I was on the litigation side. You know, most people who make the jump from law are on the transactional side. I, I was actually a litigator, but what I was doing was representing, uh, ironically enough, hotel owners hmm. who were fighting with hotel chains. So, uh, you know, we'd represent the the owners of like you know major flagged hotels in you know around the country when they were in disputes with with you know the the management companies or the franchise companies. So. Um, I did that for the last few years of my career, but really got burned out with law. I got downsized in the Great Recession or sort of immediately after it. And, and by that point, I was done. I mean, I remember actually thinking like, hey, how am I supposed to go get another job when I don't want the job? Like, how am I supposed to interview for jobs I don't want? And I realized at that point, I really needed to make a change. I started doing a lot of networking in real estate because I'd been become interested in in real estate and you know wanting to become a principal rather than you know, be a hired gun. Um, as I was networking, I was kind of getting some mixed messages from people, one of which was uh, 
look, buddy, at your age, like you're not going to get a job in real estate. Nobody's going to want to hire you. You have a great resume, but you're you're too old. You know, we're talking about institutional, you know, real estate companies. Uh, the only way you're going to break into this business is if somebody takes a liking to you and wants to be your partner. And that's exactly what happened. I met somebody who was putting together what I later learned was a syndication business. I had no idea what syndication was, but you know, we met, she was like, Hey, I think you have the ability to raise money. Um, and why don't we partner up? And so I just sort of jumped in, you know, I, we partnered up. Um, I, I did successfully raise money, but we had trouble closing deals. Um, back in those days, it was a, you know, lender issue. Really. We had, we had deals under contract. We had the equity lined up and, and the banks were the, the, the problem, you know, we found banks didn't want to lend on this stuff right so uh that lasted a couple of years uh then we broke up after a couple of years of kind of banging our heads against the wall went out on my own in 2013 founded two bridges and that was when i started get, getting some traction and started building that portfolio in, in the carolinas and that's interesting that you've come through a breakup and sort of i didn't realize you came through a breakup early on mm-hmm. um well, how was that like because obviously you would start something coming out of law you know, all gun ho and yeah, found someone. Let's let's get let's get into bed. How how was that uh, coming out of that partnership? Uh, well, coming out of it, yeah. I mean, so it, it, I've seen other people do this, and now you know when I'm talking with coaching students or talking with people in general, like I always say, you really need to partner in this business, but you shouldn't partner too fast, right? Do some mm-hmm. deals with somebody first. You know, there's no reason to to jump into a partnership. But what what you see a lot, and what I did was like. You know, two people you meet, you're interested in the same thing. Like you say, well, let's become partners. And what you think that means is, okay, now we have to form a partnership. And I think pro- probably part of the reason people do that is because it feels like you're doing something productive, right? Even though like getting deals is really hard and getting money is really hard when you're starting out, but forming a partnership, well, wow, like we, we accomplished something. So, you know, we sort of jumped into it. And then after we jumped into it and we had like, formed an entity and gotten our operating agreement together and we're looking for deals. Then we started noticing like the differences of opinion and like the differences of approach. And, you know, she's having conversations with, uh, you know, certain people who are telling her this is how it's done. And then, and I kind of viewed her as the expert and cause she had been in the business a bit. And then I was going out talking to investors kind of using what she was telling me and people were looking at me like, that's not the way this works, right? So um, we just wound up having differences of opinion. And we never really had any kind of like fight or or bad blood. But there came a point where we, after we lost the few deals that we got under contract, that we kind of both came to the realization at the same moment that like, maybe this is a good time to kind of just break up. And mm. and so we we just, you know, fortunately, we didn't have any assets that we had to like fight over. Nobody had to buy each other out. Like we kind of didn't have anything. We just had a couple of years of time kind of burned mm. uh, into this. And so it was a pretty easy, you know, split. Um, well, but also help, help you set up yourself for success in what you wanted in life, right? Because I think clarity coming out of partnerships helps you, sorry, coming out of partnerships help you helps you define clarity and where you want to go, right? And I've seen you grow, and that's probably around the time we met um, yeah. in, 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 as you came out of that partnership. I remember having a beer with you in Brooklyn and, and talking about the, the mastermind we've started. But but did that help you gain clarity to what you want to do? 
It well, it did. And the other thing that it actually did was I, I got a lot of learning and experience out of that partnership, even though we didn't successfully conclude any deals. I mean, we went right up to closing basically on a couple of deals, went through due diligence, went through the whole lending due diligence process, went through, you know, interviewing management companies. I mean, really the whole setting up syndication, we, we did everything except close those deals. And what happened was, um, you know, I, I took all the losses myself. I funded all this myself. I didn't wow. I didn't use investor money. So my my investors who were all set up and ready to go, they they didn't suffer anything except kind of having this money set aside for a while that then they didn't use and they went and used it for something else. Right. So that actually gave me a lot of credibility with my investors who then when I went out on my, it was actually one of my investors who then helped me form my second partnership when I sat down with him and I was like, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I might have to go back into law. And he was like, don't do that. Why don't, why don't we become partners instead? And I'll fund, I'll back you in this. It, it had to do because I essentially learned on my own dime, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I spent two years, I got the education instead of, you know, going to like a real estate program and paying some professors to teach it to me. I learned it on my own, uh, on my own, at my own expense, lost my own money, didn't lose investor money. And I think that actually, even though it was really painful at the time, it 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 came across making me look very credible to my investors. And also they recognized the experience that I had gained as well. So by the time then they I did get deals under contract, they were ready to go and invest in those deals with me because they they saw what came before, you right. know. Right. Yeah, you you'd laid the path for success. Um, in the future based on some pain that you had to go through, which is a really interesting point and, and something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs need to go through to, to earn your stripes, right? Because that's how you prove to your investors that you're, you're worth your salt. So, um, and then, so from there, you then went on to buy deals in the Carolinas, actually in the market where we are partnering on a deal right now. Yeah. And, and I have a lot of thanks to you for introducing me to some incredible partners down there. But but what was the, the landscape like? Because you mentioned lending back in the day. People weren't lending on multifamily. Was that is that a hang up of the 2008? Was that just like people didn't understand syndication and like, what the hell are you doing? Buying no, it wasn't. It, it, was, it was a hangover. It was probably a combination of two things. So one was that it was absolutely a hangover of 2008. The lenders were still skittish. Um, the, those deals that fell through, this is 2011, 2012 mm, timeframe, okay. Got it. right? Um, and the other thing I think was the market that we were in, which was Louisiana, which lenders were also like, you know, uh-huh. they, they were, they were, if they were going to lend on stuff, they were going to lend on like New York, LA, Chicago, Miami, that what we used to call the big six, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Louisiana was just like uh, too far you know, a bridge too far for them. Now, maybe if we'd gone with a local lender, that would have been different, but we were trying to get agency debt. We actually did get agency debt, even though it was our first deal, which is kind of amazing until they backed out on us, right? Until they <laughs> until they then came up with some like crazy pretext for backing out of the deal, right? Um, somebody got skittish along the way about about these properties that we were in contract for. So that, that was what, but you know, now it's, it's hard to imagine that happening now, or at least the, the last few years when lenders... If you just, you know, if the word began with an M and ended with a Y, right? They were like, they were like, uh, yeah, we'll give what you money. You <laughs> yeah, how much? How much? How much do you need? One hundred twenty percent. Yeah. So uh, it was a very different environment, right? But then, um, but then I switched. You know, I, I, that the only reason I was in that market was because she already had assets there. She knew that market. I was never 
particularly interested in that market. But, you know, well, I figured we've already got some headway made there. But I was interested in South Carolina because I, as you know, I like data. I'm kind of geeky. I can like sit there. I can like literally like read census data for fun. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, like I think it's fun. Um, and I was just looking, you know, I had a couple of criteria for when I started out because I didn't know, I didn't even know what I didn't know then, but I, mm. I, I could, I could sort of intuit a couple things. One was that population growth was better than not population growth. Right. And the more population growth there was the better. So now that if you if you said, well, what's growing? Well, there are a lot of places that were growing, right? So I said, well, okay, then it should be more than the national average. So that narrowed down the number of markets. And then I was like, you know, going to Louisiana was a big pain in the neck from New York City. So it's got to be on the East Coast, right? So what's growing faster than the national average and is on the East Coast? Uh, well, it, it was the Carolinas. Um, Florida also fit that metric, but at the I, probably people will find this hard to believe now too, but Florida a decade ago had this reputation of being incredibly boomy and busty, right? Mm -hmm. So you could get caught with your pants down because they would overbuild in Florida. And coming out of the Great Recession when overbuilding was this huge problem, I was like, I don't think I want to be be touching Florida because who knows what's going to happen. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So um but the Carolinas were like really under the radar they weren't boomy and busty. They didn't get overbuilt, but they had this really nice population growth going on. And I thought, oh, that sounds kind of like that's a little Goldilocksy for me. Not too hot, not too cold. It's just <laughs> right, you know. So that that was what attracted me um, to the Carolinas. And first, I was looking at Charleston, but Charleston even then was was quite expensive and very compressed cap rates. Um, and but then I sort of discovered Greenville and the Upstate, and I was like, wow, the population growth here is actually better than Charleston. Right. And this is a really growing area and it's really under the radar. Like nobody was looking at, uh, at, at Greenville in those days. And like the, out of, the number of sort of out of state investor groups at, at that point, there were like five of us. And like we yeah. all knew, we, we all knew who we, the others were. And uh, they were all based in New York and Philadelphia. And um, so it was a lot, it was pretty easy to get deals. And, uh, you know, if you're buying deals at like, you know, eight, nine caps. And, you know, and meanwhile, and everybody was like fl flooding into Texas, like Texas was great because it was sucking all that investor attention away from the Carolinas. Uh, so I was able to get in when it was still, you know, an under the radar place. Yeah. Well, and today we're getting under the radar. What does under the radar even look like today? So yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it's really interesting. But but now let's pivot to your hotel. Like you're, you're in, you've just bought a hotel. Maybe like explain why the hotel route. Um, a lot of people in the multifamily space would think self-storage is the next or mobile home parks would be the next sort of natural step. But you jump to hotels, which if you look at the spectrum and I work for a big developer, hotels would be up there in the sort of more risky category in commercial. Um, you know, out of you've got multi, you've got self-storage, you've got mobile home parks, you've got office, you've got retail, and you've got hotels. And 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 we know coming out of the pandemic, you know, people couldn't travel, right? So who's, who's getting raked over the coals? So why the decision to go down the hotel route? Yeah, so I mean, this is, uh, I can't say that this was like a planned out decision, right? Mm -hmm. It was not, it was not like, okay, I'm looking at the landscape and multifamily is crowded, so where should I go next? It didn't, it didn't come about that way. The way it came about was... Uh, so my my family, we own a, a second house in upstate New York in a region called the Finger Lakes, which is, it's a 
really beautiful area. Cornell University is is in in the Finger Lakes, um, but there are ten lakes. They're long and skinny. That's why they call them the Finger Lakes. And um, it's a it's a wine region. It's becoming increasingly like a beer region, spirits, farm to table food, ecotourism. There's beautiful waterfalls, and there's you know the lakes are gorgeous, and they're full of beaches and stuff. So we've been going there for years, and we finally bought a house a couple of years ago. And on the way to the to our house, we would pass this hotel, right? And we and the hotel was in this spectacular location overlooking Seneca Lake, which is one of the biggest lakes there. I mean, just commanding view of this lake, right? And and it's, it was kind of this old, kind of tired hotel. And every every time we passed it, we would say, wow, it, it's such a shame that there is this old, tired hotel in this amazing location. Uh, so fast forward a couple of years, I was on Crexy looking for uh maybe small i was just kidding maybe i'll try to pick up some small multis on my own in upstate new york you know just because again i have that like want to look under the radar kind of bent to me the value investor bent to me like i want to go where other people are not looking and i was thinking like you know there's some good markets up here they don't have the growth that you have in the south but there's some very solidly you know economically solid places the cap rates are better you know, maybe I, you know, could I fill a 10 unit property? Yeah, probably I could. I wouldn't really worry too much about being able to fill 10 units. So I was looking at stuff like that just to see what was around. And I noticed that this hotel was for sale. And so I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I noticed that it had been on, you know, it'd been on the market for like a year and they kept on cutting the price and cutting the price and cutting the price. So I just started playing around with it. And as I played around with it, I realized that, well, hey, I don't really know how to underwrite this. I don't know anything about hotels. Maybe I should find someone who does. So I talked with one of my business partners, just having to ask him, you know, hey, do you happen to know anybody who's in the hotel business who could give me some advice? And he said, look, my wife's cousin actually owns a hotel management company. He's a second generation hotel guy. Talk with him. So we started talking, showed him the asset, uh, had him underwrite it. And he was like, I think there's something here. So we just kept on sort of digging into it. The idea being that we were going to rehab it. We're going to tr transform it into something, uh, you know, other than what it is uh, and, you know, position it in the market differently and stuff like that. And, and as sort of as we got further down this, this road, the project became more and more appealing. So I decided to go to a couple of investors that, you know, very old friends of mine who've invested in past deals who have done I did very well for in past deals uh, and just said to them, what do you think about this? You know, I wanted, and I'd said, I didn't want to deal with a bank. I was like, I would, I want to do this all cash, including, you know, purchase price and rehab. And, you know, what do you think? And they said, they looked at the underwriting and they said, okay, you know, based on your track record and our history together and what you're presenting, we'll, we'll do it. So I had everything lined up and figured, okay, let, let's go for it. So, uh, I mean, you know, interrupt me anytime you want. No, we no, have, this is this is great. Like, yeah. I think the one thing I want to—it's um, interesting as you as we all grow as an entrepreneur, right? I I I have that 
uh, I don't know if it's fantasy or uh, the lust when you, you're you're in a place and it's a holiday resort. Oh, how cool would it be to, to own mm. that over there? You know, oh, I want to own right. that building driving. I always remember the Flatiron building in New York City just being completely in awe of how it's just such mm. beautiful architecture. You're like, oh, you'd, you'd like, I'd never own that, but you you, you always right. dream. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's awesome that you drove past it and it's, it's been a bit of kismet that's come all, all around to, to say, like, now you've got this thing under contract. So let's dive into a little bit more of the, the numbers here. So what from a, from a high-level you mentioned growth before in, in markets. What do you look for in hotels to make sure that you're, you know, are buying something? Because hotels are, you know, inherently for, for, for vacations and when people have excess money right. and all that sort of stuff. So how do you get comfortable knowing a region's going to sustain its sort of appeal? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's definitely so, sort of a thought process I went through in respect to this hotel, right? So uh, you know, so one thing I knew was I'm going in at a pretty low basis, right? And if we have time, we can talk about sort of where I want to go with this and, and yeah, some yeah. thoughts around the, the hotel business. But we're going in at a low basis. So that, that you know, took care of some of the risk right there. But there are some other appealing things about this particular hotel, right? So, and this market. One was that this region in general, the tourism industry has been growing st- steadily over time, right? Mm. So the Finger Lakes have become more and more of a destination for people all over really like the eastern half of the united states uh, and into canada i mean you know it's it, this is two hours from montreal uh, sorry two hours from toronto right mm-hmm. so you have you have a lot of people coming from canada to the region uh it, the finger lakes is probably the premier wine region on the east coast right it's okay. new york is now actually the third biggest uh, or maybe the second biggest wine producing state in the country. So it'd be like um, a Sonoma Valley type. It of is, yes. Yeah. So it is. It is definitely trending in that direction. Yep. In terms of like a Sonoma, uh, it's adding. Like I said, there's now a big craft beer industry growing there. A big, you know, uh, spirits industry growing there. Cheese, uh, you know, farming, farm to table, plus the nature, which draws in a lot of people. The the second thing. So regionally, you have that. Right. But with respect to this specific hotel, there's also a state park called Watkins Glen State Park, which is uh, pretty much every year ranked one of the top five state parks in the country. Hmm. And it draws about a million people a year to the state park, which is surprising because it's a very small park. But the thing is, uh, if you have ever seen like the Lord of the Rings movies, and you see the the Rivendell where the elves live. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it looks like. It's a spectacular. <laughs> it's a spectacular canyon that you can hike through and hike behind waterfalls. And it's got like eleven waterfalls in this canyon. And it's just it's just amazing. So that draws a lot of people. There's also the history of Watkins Glen. It's a big auto racing area, and they they literally used to have Formula One Grand Prix through the streets of the town in the fifties, and now they have NASCAR, uh, but they there was Watkins Glen International, which back in the days when Formula One was popular in the U.S., that Watkins Glen was one of the basically one of the main Formula One ventures. And interestingly enough, this hotel was where was the kind of preferred place for the racers to stay. So yet Paul Newman always stayed at this hotel when he was racing. Mario Andretti always stayed at this hotel. And so it's got this amazing history too, which we we don't want to try to play on a bit as well. But but I knew just from the like, what's the draw of this? We knew we had the draw. We knew people were coming, and we knew that the region is growing, and and people are going to continue to come. And then the third thing was that 
you know, other than being shut down completely because when the, the shutdown orders in COVID happened, once things opened up, the place boomed because people went like they couldn't fly anywhere and they had to take driving vacations. And and the region just boomed the last couple of years as soon as uh, things opened up, which meant that there's there are millions of people who had never been there before who've now been there. And, and chances are they're going to want to come back again because now now they know the region, right? right? So it was a big boost to the region in terms of tourism. And if you think about where it's positioned, you're basically within a four or five hour drive of New York City, Philadelphia, Toronto, uh, Pittsburgh, Ohio, like Boston, maybe six hours from Boston. But the whole Northeast Metroplex, you're with, within a quick drive of this place. So for for a flying, sorry, for a driving vacation. Uh, you've got, you know, 30, 40 million people within driving distance of this place and, and not, and the only, and, and multiple attractions. So it's you know, not just the waterfalls, not just the racing, not just the wine, not just the lakes, but all of it together. So that was, that was the thinking behind it. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you will automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. And I think that to your point of coming out of COVID, again, all the kismet nature of this this uh, investment, it's COVID forced people to be more into the driving. So probably people wanted to escape for weekends and didn't couldn't get on planes to go yeah. internationally. Um, but from an underwriting point of view, how do you underwrite it in, in, in differences compared to multifamily? You know, I know just my little bit of knowledge, uh, ADR, average daily rate uh, for right. those people who don't know what that means. Maybe explain like a little bit of the ADRs and the occupancies and and, and how you're looking to can, you know, make sure you're saying you're buying at a good basis, but how are you then from a from a, a you know stabilization point of view? What are you looking at to really make sure you are remaining conservative and you can hit your numbers? So the under so the first major difference in the underwriting that jumped out at me when I started you know working on it with my my manager that I've hired is that you know, like in multifamily you're looking for you know you're shooting for like a fifty percent expense ratio, mm-hmm. right? Generally speaking, so forty-five to fifty-five. Maybe if you've got a class A asset, class A asset, you can be below <laughs> forty, right? Because um, you have less, you know, ongoing maintenance and stuff. Uh, but also in in multifamily, your your expense costs are mostly fixed, right? You can't. Maybe you can like get away with one less staff member or you know something to to kind of shave the expenses. But there's not. You know, you can institute rubs maybe to get your you know, your utilities cost down or whatever, but it's basically fixed, right? I mean, the only, the only, the only variable that's really going to change with occupancy is maybe utilities because people are using more or less utilities. Hospitality is very different. Your costs are basically a function of your occupancy, mm. right? So the the more occupancy you have, the more cost you have. And generally what you're shooting for is a about a 65% expense ratio. Right. Wow, okay. And and but it's all it's but it's it's directly connected to your occupancy, right? So because you're so let's say your 
your front desk staff, your your especially your housekeeping are are directly related. The, they're paid by the hour and they're they're working more or less hours depending on where you've more more or less guests, right? So that cost expands or contracts with your occupancy, right? Same thing as like, you know, a major expense for hotels is credit card charges, mm-hmm. right? That's directly related to uh to how much revenue you're bringing in, right? Um so you don't have as much you know, fixed costs, your fixed costs are going to be your property taxes. You know, if you have a mortgage, your mortgage, right? Um, I mean, even utilities to some extent are going to be related to how many people are in the room turning on the lights and turning on the heat, right? So, um, so it's a different way of looking at it. And, you know, when I first thought like, oh, 65%, that's too high. Well, that's just basically, that's the industry standard. That's what you underwrite. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll be able to shave a couple points off it here or there, or maybe if you can really get premium room rates, you can expand it a bit more, but you, you're kind of like shooting in that in that range, right? Yep. So yep. that was one big, um, you know, one big uh, difference. And the other is that you know, sort of looking at like a hotel like this is is very seasonal, right? So you've got, you know, summertime you're packed out, and then you've got what's called head and shoulders, right? So the head is the summer, and then spring and fall are the shoulders, and then it sort of drops off in the winter time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so sort of writing conservatively, you're trying to figure out, well, what is my occupancy going to be for like the whole year? Right. And, and we shot pretty low on that number. We thought, OK, we're probably all things considered, you know, being near 100 percent in the summer and being probably, you know, 15 to 30 percent in the wintertime. Wow. Um, you know, we're probably going to be around. 56, 57 percent on an annual basis, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. You, you underwrite that, and then you figure out what your what you think you can get, right? At this, that's your rate, right? And then you multiply by your occupancy, you get your average daily rate. So uh, that you know that's how that's how you underwrite it, right? You basically use those two variables, like what are we going to charge for the room, and then what do we think you know the average that we're going to get for the whole year is, and then what's our occupancy? So that that gives you your top line revenue. Yep. Um, but but then there are other things that you can do, you know, which, for instance, we are not being done at the hotel. So the, I, I could take a break now, too, if you want. But yeah. there are certain things that we that were some quote, quote unquote value adds that in addition to the rehab that we're going to do, there are value adds that we're able to put in place, uh, you know, that that allow us to capture more revenue. But I don't, I don't know if you yeah, have no, a question so, now. So, so yeah. and for those people listening, um, again, I used to work for a develop, hotel developer, actually, and they call them a PIP project. Um, uh, what is it? A, 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 a project? What was PIP stand for again? It was like um, it's essentially a value add. So you come in and you um, performance enhancing program or something like that. It was that was what it stood for. Yeah, uh, uh, those it, are what the yeah those yeah. are when the when the flags come and tell you you have to go and you have to you know build a certain way. You have to do your whole you know hotel over again with our new brand standards, and you got to. Buy new mattresses and new linens and new Correct. desks and new and, beds and new everything. Yeah, but, but from a design point of view, it's like they've got a whole thick book. If you went to Hyatt right. or you went to you know Hilton, that would be like depending on the flag, you would have to you know have certain look in your lobbies and certain looks in your in, right. in, in your room. So for you, your boutique, right? So you can right. really do whatever you want, right? Is there is there pros and cons for being with a flag and not a flag? Well, yeah. So the biggest the and this yeah, you know, it's funny. In a way, I've come full circle because I was a hotel litigator, right? So back in the day, so I was familiar. You were familiar with this from the building side. I was familiar with like these 
brand standards and stuff from the litigation side where, you know, the, the brands were like forcing owners to spend all this money that they didn't want to spend and they're always fighting about it. But the advantage to having a flag, right, is uh, supposedly the reservation system and the brand. Like you're, mm. you're, you're, you, you don't have to do any of the work of brand building. You're just buying into a system that already exists. That's, right. that's right. the argument, right? And for a lot of, if you're building hotels, it's almost impossible to build a hotel without a flag because the lenders really only land on flagged hotels, right? Because it gives it them that risk. Right. Yeah. They see that as being less risky than building it, a, an independent hotel on your, you know, on your own. So that's, those are the two big advantages. The disadvantages are like what you said, you're, you now have to build the hotel the way they want it. Right. And it kind of locks you in because if you decide you want to go from like Marriott to Hyatt, right. You've now got to go and basically re do everything in your hotel to bring it to the Hyatt standard instead of the Marriott standard. Right. Or, when when Marriott decides that they're changing all of their corporate logos and branding, well, now you've got to spend all this money to to redo everything in your hotel to to accommodate them. Um, as an independent, you know, we were just before this call. I was on. Uh, I had two calls this morning: one with our branding people and one with our design team. And you know, a couple of weeks ago at the hotel, I met with the design team, and the, you know, the question I asked them was, well how quickly can you turn this around? Mm. And they said, well, because you're an independent hotel, we can turn it around very quickly because we don't have to then go to the brand and spend two months back and like, forth, back and forth with them, you know, after, and then the back and forth with you about getting, so the process is much more streamlined because they don't have, we don't have to answer to the brand. So that's, you know, we have just much more freedom to kind of make our own aesthetic choices, make our own choices about kind of the quality of, you know, bedding, linen, you know, amenities, whatever we want to do. So uh, there is a big advantage in some ways to having a non-branded hotel because you have that freedom. Yeah, no, and, and, I, and I would love to spend more time talking about this. We do actually have only a couple more minutes left in the show, but really where, what's the goal here of of, of producing something bigger than you you mentioned in, i mentioned in the introduction something about a, a, a boutique line of hotels is that the thought given your entrepreneurial brain yeah so this is definitely one thing that you know i'm trying to just do one step at a time let's get this one done you know make it a success and then think about expanding but you know since the possibility is there you know we are when we're picking names we're trying to think about well, what's brandable what what what's not limited to this location what's something we can we can take to other locations if we buy more hotels the, the, i think there's a great opportunity in this space because if you look at sort of who owns these hotels it's a little bit like multifamily was a few years ago where you had a lot of mom and pop owners right and they they were they were semi-professionalized at best and they're you know it was before you know the the big institutions getting into buying from mom and pops, right? If you look at a lot of these hotels, well, who owns them? They're baby boomers, sometimes even silent generation folks are older than the boomers. Uh, their their kids don't want to take over the hotels, right? They and there's a very limited exit for them because you basically have to sell to somebody who wants to then take on the job of running a hotel. If it's a bed and breakfast, I think most people can probably handle like a small bed and breakfast if they've never done it before. Mm -hmm. But getting into like a 30, 40, 50 room hotel, that's like if you don't have some expertise, 
you're going to be, this is difficult, right? And plus you've got to come up with the capital. I think that there is a lot of opportunity for, to buy these hotels at reasonable valuations. They almost all need some work because the nature of, of this business with these mom and pops is they just don't have a lot of additional capital to reinvest in redoing the hotels, right? So there, you see them, they're sort of, maybe they've been redone once 20, 30 years ago. They really need a refresh. And, and I think that the opportunity to come in, uh, you know, find more attractive assets in attractive locations. Once we've gone through all this work of like building our own design, you know, sort of schematics, what our brand looks like, then it becomes very easy to go into the next one and do it the same way. You know, have we have the management lined up. We can just kind of create a system where we can buy these assets at, at decent valuations and and then, you know, professionalize the operation, redesign it, rehab it, make it into something new and nice and and just move on to the next one. Yeah, I think the, the key there is with boutique hotels is finding those locations, right? If you start yep. looking at certain, I know I travel a lot, I, I look at certain areas of, you know, in Italy or parts of Mexico or parts of Australia, which have very, very beautiful hotels. And you would never see another brand like that until you get to another really exotic location, like in Greece mm-hmm. or somewhere like that. So is that kind of the the thought that potentially will, will, will be around? Yeah. I mean, what I'm thinking about is if we can find more things like, like, so we're going for, this is a 1950s hotel. So we're going for kind of like a retro mid-century modern madman kind of mm-hmm. feel like, you know, so wanting to be sort of cool, but also recognizing the fact that this is not Brooklyn, right? This is upstate New York. So kind of just trying to figure out how to kind of get that that mix right. But there are lots of places like all throughout the Northeast, if we just want to start there, where you've got like lakeside hotels in in very, you know, the Adirondacks in New York would be like another logical place to go or the, the Thousand Islands in New York, another sort of very similar kind of market. You know, it's very, very, you know, seasonal. There is some some business the rest of the year, but mostly it's that kind of summer, spring and fall business. And you have very similar assets there. You have very, you know, you can find places with the same kind of beautiful views or, you know, whether they're mountain views or, you know, water views or whatever. I think this is replicable in other places around the Northeast. So you could build a brand around that sort of similar, similarly situated, you know, hotels that, you know, in beautiful spots, you know, where, your competition. One thing I didn't mention too is sort of the positioning of this hotel. Cause in this, in this market, there's one sort of quote unquote luxury hotel, which is kind of corporate-y. Um, and then there's a lot of these kind of old, old mom and pop motels. So there's like a top and there's a bottom, and there's nothing in the middle. Mm-hmm. We're going, we're going for the middle. And and I think that there are probably a lot of other markets that fit that same, that same uh, you know, pattern where you've got maybe you've got a couple of like your typical limited service, you know, motel, you know, hotel, you know, your Hampton Inns and whatnot. And then you've got a bunch of kind of these tired old motels from the 50s and maybe some like really high end, you know, B&B or little tiny cute inn that's, you know, 500 a night. But there's really nothing in the middle right. that's that's cool and unique. And I think that we can potentially fit that spot. Yeah, no, and I completely agree. As a traveler myself, when I go on holidays, I don't want to stay in that corporate 
you know, chain, right? I want something unique and boutique hotels offer that in, in beautiful locations. When I'm traveling in Austin or Greenville or, you know, New York, you stay and just, okay, what's cheap? What's going to put someone to put my head? I think from a design perspective, from a boutique perspective, you've got to be a little different, but I think you, you play into that with a good design team and also choosing the right location. So, um, but mate, with that being said, we do like to wrap up the show here. Look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show. Uh, where can people reach you if they want to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? Yeah. So, uh, well, I, I say the, the place to go now is to uh, apartmentinvestorsclub.com. Uh, that is uh, sort of in the process of bringing all of my brands under apartmentinvestorsclub.com. So if you go there, uh, you can get a free download and get on my list. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch. You can also always reach me at uh, Two Bridges Asset Management if you're looking to invest uh, in deals with me. And you can reach me at uh, Twombly at Two Bridges Management, which is MGMT for management.com. Awesome. Awesome, mate. Well, look, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I just want to quickly reflect some of the things I took away from today's show. I think the first one is just knowing you for so many years, seeing how awesome you're, you're coming into your own self and finding these these little niches uh, in and around the country and, and really reflecting of who you are as a person. I think that sort of it, it, it speaks volumes in terms of seeing something on the side of a road that you thought was cute and, and affordable and then going down that path, or, well, not affordable, cute and we could do something with it. And then it's like slowly chipping away at it and finding out there's opportunity. And so having that resilience there, I think is really, really important. Um, and I think also making an understanding the hotel business in itself, it takes a lot of, it's a whole different asset class. It takes a different way, way of thinking, but by the sounds of it, you've got the right team around you, you're going in the right direction from a boutique point of view, you're trying to be different in, in a local market, but also being hyper-local and understanding that local market because you and your family have a house up there. So all those elements come together to make this uh, such an interesting conversation that I could continue talking to you for the next couple of hours, but I do have to ju jump to another call. But did I leave anything out? No, I think that pretty much covers it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to coming back when this is all done and we can talk about it more. Yeah, I'd love to see some drone footage of the before and afters. So well, with that being said, mate, enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. You too. Have a great weekend. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Jonathan. If you do want to get into his world, go to apartmentinvestorclub.com. Is that correct, Jonathan, or apartments? Apartment Investors Club. Apartmentinvestorsclub.com. Check that out. He's also on LinkedIn and on social media. So just Google his name, easiest way to find out. If you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ. We're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. <laughs>